Today is Transfiguration Sunday. Jesus manifests the fullness of his glory to his inner circle of apostles. The church has always held that the purpose of this manifestation was to strengthen them for his passion and death was about to come, where he would look like anything other than what they had just seen in that mountain. To strengthen them, they saw his glory, his transfiguration. And the church always uses this gospel on the Sunday preceding Lent to give us that same strengthening. We're about to remember again solemnly in Lent the passion and death of our Lord. And to keep that always in view, how do we understand these things? to see that glory that they saw on the mountain. Now, this is a very important event. It's in, all, it's in three of the four Gospels. Only John doesn't mention it. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's an unforgettable event. Look in today's epistle. Peter, decades later, is referring it as one of the highlights of his faith. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Decades later, a man who had seen the risen Christ is speaking of the transfiguration. So our questions this morning are, how do we really understand the transfiguration and what are the lessons of the transfiguration and the other manifestations of Christ's glory? What are those lessons for our life? Well, let's start with the, the narrative. The narrative of Matthew, Mark, and Luke is almost identical in all three Gospels. We start out with G Jesus leads his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, off away to the top of a high mountain. And he's transfigured before. What does that mean? We're told that the appearance of his face changed. We're told that um, Luke says his, the appearance of his countenance was altered, and Matthew tells us, tells us that his face shone like the sun. And we're told the appearance of his garments changed. Mark tells us they're intensely white, as no fuller on earth could bleach them. Matthew said white as light, and Luke says dazzling white. And he appears with Moses and Elijah. Now, quintessentially, we talk about the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. The law being given by Moses, and then the series of prophets, the greatest of the prophets being Elijah. And here they are, the law and the prophets in person, Moses and Elijah on the mountain, speaking with Jesus. Peter is in shock, and no surprise does the wrong thing. Okay, for he did not know what to say, for they were exceedingly afraid. This is an experience of what we call a theophany. We actually see all three persons of the Holy Trinity. Remember, at Jesus' baptism, Jesus is in the water. We have the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove, and we hear that voice, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Here again, what we have is this time the Holy Spirit, instead of being a dove, is that cloud that overshadows them. Remember, the cloud shows that the Spirit of God had actually come into the tent or come into the temple. So the cloud is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is there, covered with this cloud, and the voice from God once again says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I well pleased. Listen to him. And then, strangely, it ends as suddenly as it began. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. All over. So what does it mean? Well, a vital clue, if you look at the, today's gospel, is the very first words that we tend to go over, don't seem that significant. It says, 
after six days. Similar words we find in Mark and Luke's account, uh, Matthew and Mark, uh, Luke's account as well. They're clearly tying this to something that in all three Gospels happens immediately before the Transfiguration. Immediately before. Thus, if we had any doubt, this is an immediate time. So what had just happened in our previous verses? In Mark's Gospel, it says, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Jesus clearly speaks of the last day, and he says, people standing there will not die until someone, some people standing there will not die until they see that power. What does it tell us? The transfiguration is a foretaste of Jesus' returning glory. It's the first fruits of Jesus' returning glory. The kingdom tells us that wonderful truth. The kingdom of God is already here. It will come to its fullness, its fruition, when we are with God forever in our resurrection bodies. But it is already here. Now, they might have a comparison with Moses. You know, when the children of Israel and later Moses are in the desert and Moses looks out from Mount Nebo, the promised land is there even if they're not in it. That's important. Throughout the desert, the promised land is there even though they are not. And Moses, of course, tragically, Moses is there at Mount Nebo looking out in the land. Some people say that he had never entered. That's not true. There was somebody who could bring even Moses into the promised land. Jesus, that's what happens today. Today, Moses sets foot in the promised land. So, what we have here is also it's sort of like a, the transfiguration. They see that fact. You know, they, we can conceptualize. They actually saw the fact that Christ is in glory. Even though we can't see it now, they saw that with their own eyes. Peter, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, the title of our word today is One Glory, Three Faces. Well, so far, we've identified two faces of glory. The one is at the transfiguration. We say that is a foretaste of Christ's coming in glory at the end of time. One, two, where's three? Where's the third face? It's actually in between. Remember how we said that John's gospel doesn't mention the transfiguration, which is surprising given that John was there. And if it had this effect on Peter, why didn't it have this effect on John? Well, it did, I'm sure. But John has something more important. The main theme of John's gospel is nothing can distract us from it, is the moment of Jesus' glory is on the cross. That is the supreme moment of his glory. Nothing can be detract from that. The supreme moment. Remember, Jesus himself, speaking of his crucifixion in John's Gospel, says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is speaking of his death on the cross. He ne the next words are, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, we might say to ourselves, How can a bloody and humiliating death on the cross be glory? What can that possibly mean? Well, John, 1 John 4, 8 tells us famously that God is love. And Jesus' death on the cross is the perfect, insurpassable example of what that looks like. 
Nothing ever, not before or after, could ever look like what Jesus did on the cross. If we want to see what love looks like with our own eyes, we see it when we see Jesus giving up everything on the cross. So Jesus is never more God-like, visibly God, love, than at that moment. That is his hour of glory. This is why in the Eastern Church, when you have, we know what was written on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. But in the Eastern Orthodox Churches, all the crucifixes will have a sign is King of Glory, saying this is what it's all about. You think, it's what the centurion says, it's this truly is the Son of God. This truly was the Son of God. It's the King of Glory. So John says in the beginning of his gospel, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. So between the glory of the transfiguration and the glory of Christ's second coming, there's the glory of Christ's death on the cross. Now, what are the lessons for us? Well, let's look at the glory of the transfiguration. Remember that reality that the kingdom is already here. Remember Jesus, when he says his farewell to his disciples, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not will be given to me, has been given to me. That's our, our confidence. It's, uh, uh, Paul says in Philippians, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So again, the kingdom has already, already begun. We have that source of power there to, to grasp onto. And our personal weakness isn't an obstacle, it's actually an opportunity. Remember Paul, when he complained about his sword is a, a thorn of the flesh, he famously says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient to you, for you, for my power is made manifest in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness and insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then am I strong. So because Jesus reigns at the right hand of the Father, even now the kingdom, we have access to the full power and authority of God now. This is why we, our bishop teaches us that we're not ashamed to need Jesus to draw into that power. This is why we read our stories of transformation, that book that we put out. This is what it's all about. God's power is at work now in the world. The kingdom is already here. So we have a question we should ask ourselves when we think of the Jesus and his transfiguration. Remember we talked about the end of the vision. They said they saw only Jesus, just Jesus. They saw only Jesus. When we look at Jesus, do we see just Jesus, the human Jesus? Do we see someone powerful in the past and someone who will be powerful again in the future at his second coming but somehow is absent now, somehow doesn't have that power today? Do we see someone who was powerful, will be powerful, but absent today? Or we, do we see the one to whom all authority has been given, who right now exercises that power for our good? Now, what about the glory of Christ at his second coming? What has God promised us? Remember the woman at the well? Jesus said famously, he said, if you had any idea who it was you're talking to, you would ask him for living waters and he would give it to you. This is the opportunity. Ask for living waters. This is your chance. So what has God promised to us? Peter also says in his second epistles, he said, he has granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature to share God's own life. That is our inheritance. That is our future. That is our, what we are called to do, to share in God's own life for all eternity. 
This is the origin of the prayer that sometimes is used when the water is poured into the wine in preparing the table for Eucharist. The prayer says, May we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. That's a promise to share, to be partakers in his divine nature. That's our promise. Yet all too often don't we really put our hope not on that promise, but on the hopes of a better life here and now. You know, Paul warned us about that. If, if our faith is all about living a better life today, he said, If in Christ we hope for in this life only, of all people we are most to be pitied. So we need to question ourselves. Where am I looking for my inheritance? God has made us heirs with Jesus. Where am I looking for my inheritance? Am I looking for a share in God's gifts? Or am I looking for God himself is my inheritance? Remember in Romans, Paul teaches us, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Now, heirs of God, God doesn't die, so we're not talking about the one we inherit from. He is our inheritance to actually have God. Is, our, is that our hope? Are we hoping for God as our inheritance? Or simply a better life here? You know, we have that tragic story in the Old Testament with Esau and Jacob. Esau had the birthright, and he sold it for something as passing as a meal. He was really hungry some, one day, and he sold it for a meal. Are we doing something that's very similar? God has promised us a share of his own eternal life forever. And are we trading that against career, self-indulgence, the life in this world? Are we really Jacob or are we Esau in our own choices? The glory of Christ on the cross. Jesus tells us that his path is our path. Remember how everything that happens to John the Baptist later happens to Jesus? From the, from the birth all the way through the preaching, through his arrest, his death, his burial. Jesus is our path. He's our forerunner. He's our path. Jesus tells us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Notice he says, not some people, it's not some great saints, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Paul tells us if we've been united with him in his death like, in a death like his, then we'll be united with him in a resurrection like him. Our call is to death with Jesus. The path to Easter always passes through Good Friday. There are no exceptions for all of us. The path to Easter will all, for each one of us, will pass through Good Friday. So we ask ourselves, no matter how things look to the eyes of the world, our cross is our glory. You know, my, I love to quote it. It's my favorite verse about the Christian life. 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, And we, all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. He says, as we look at Jesus on the cross in our life as Christians, that is what we are being transformed to by God's grace, complete self-giving love. Love one another as I have loved you. Jesus said, this is his commandment. We have loved one another. That was from the Old Testament for Leviticus. Love one another as I have loved you. We're being changed from glory. As we look at him and follow that image, we're being changed into it. So the question we have to ask ourselves, how do we approach suffering in our life, challenges in our life? Do we rage against God? God is unfaithful. God has betrayed me. Or can we truly pray with Paul? 
that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is a prayer from Paul, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. As we say, the church has always had Transfiguration Sunday as a preparation for Lent, Ash Wednesday about to come. So what should we earnestly strive for this Lent? The grace to see God's kingdom present here and now and to draw on that strength, the strength of the one to whom all authority has already been given. To rejoice in our weakness, to realize in our weakness, God's strength is made manifest. You see, this is our glory, is our weakness. When we are weak, God fills us like he filled his temple and axed his glory. We seek the grace to put our hope on nothing less than God himself. Nothing less than God is our inheritance. Life with God. And finally, to keep our eyes fixed on the crucified Christ so that we can be changed into that image from glory to glory. In the words of today's collect, let us pray. God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant to us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into the likeness from glory to glory through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.